What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hi, everybody. I'm Fran Spielman, and with me is a treat. Mary (laughs) Mitchell, our columnist at the Sun-Times, who is now going to take a step back and enjoy your life a little bit better. Congratulations on a wonderful career. Thank you so much, Fran. Yeah, it's exciting. It's scary. It's uh, it's bittersweet. You know, you this has been like my my cocoon. I came here in 1990, and I've been here ever since. You know, I had I never worked for another newspaper. This is what I know. This is the city that I know. This is the work that I know. And so it was. It's kind of scary that knowing that I'm going to wake up on you know Thursday morning, and I I will no longer be. Mary Mitchell, I'll be somebody Oh, you'll always be Mary Mitchell. (laughs) That's never going to be taken away from you. What will you do? Okay. Well, so far, I think what I, the first thing I want to do is, is catch up with my life. You know, I have seven grandchildren. Uh, I have three of them in college. I have one that's going to be going to, uh, middle school and I have several living in different, a different city different state, and I just want to catch up with them. I want to spend time with them. I want to, I want to be there in the present, in the moment with them, and not have to always say, oh, I would do it. If I can do it, I'll try to do it, and, you know, have the energy to, to still enjoy them. When I look back on your career, I think of someone who's rare because you had the guts to talk about things that were personal to you and admit your own fallibilities, to take on icons, who other people were afraid to touch. Mm-hmm. You've had tremendous courage and the courage that it took to even get the column in the first place. Where did that come from? I think it comes from, first of all, I grew up in a large family. Uh, a ten, it was 10 of us. And you and were the he, oldest. And I was the oldest. And so I had to play a role in helping to take care of them. Uh, we had to entertain them. We had to keep them uh, together. And what did uh, you do to entertain them? Well, well, we did a lot of puppet shows. Really? <laughs> yeah, we did a lot of, a lot of, I used to write scripts and I used to let them perform the little plays that I would write. Uh, my twin sister was very good with music. So she introduced us to a lot of music. Uh, but, but basically I had to be, um, a person that took care of other people. I was a caregiver in a way. And that I brought that with me. Uh, in my work career, especially in my journalism career, it's very important. It was very important to me that I be an advocate. I didn't even know when I walked into the door what an advocate really was, but that's the role that I 
ended up fulfilling because I really cared about the little person and the ordinary person, not the person that had the PR staff, not the icons, not the powerful people, but the person who cannot get someone to answer the phone or really had a real problem and couldn't get anybody to listen to them. And what I found out over the years, Fran, is that in a lot of instances, it's not that they want you to solve the problem. They want to be heard. Mm -hmm. That's want what you to, most people want. Yeah, that you, they want you to pick up the phone and listen to their story. And when they get finished telling their story, you can hear the sigh of relief. Mm -hmm. And so those are the people that I, th th that's my audience. Those are the people that I spoke to and that really have supported me through 29 years of my career. Now, you grew up in public housing. Did you stay inside uh, because you were afraid to go outside? Did that help you in the, you know, in all the reading and writing and stuff? Well, um, you know, when you, first of all, when you have a 10, when you have eight or nine, when you have nine siblings, uh, you don't have much space and you're living in public housing, there's nowhere for you to go to be alone. I found out the way to be alone and the way to have space was to read. And so I was a, a reader. I read everything. You know, my father would come in at night and I'd be under the covers in the bed with some type of flashlight, flashlight trying to read a book or finish a book. I, I got in too. trouble. <laughs> yeah. I used to get in trouble for like, you should be watching the kids and you're not watching the kids. You're reading a book. So that kind of is the foundation. I tell people all the time when they ask me about how you became a, I became a journalist. I tell them the first step is always reading. You know, you have to love the written word. You have to love storytelling. You have to be fascinated by how people put stories together. So that's basically how I got into it. I never knew that I was going to uh, to be a, a, a journalist. There were no journalists, uh, people coming to our school to talk to us. I didn't know any journalists. I didn't think for one moment that I could be in a newsroom or a writer. But what I did know is that I cared about people and I loved to read. And those two things, I think, brought me as far as uh, the newsroom. But you were a legal secretary for 20 years, right? 20 years. And then years. how did it happen that you were able, and you were the first black legal secretary at a major law firm. Right. So how did you go from there to journalism? Well, you know... Think about it. Uh, when you're a legal secretary, you're doing a lot of transcription, you're doing a lot of writing, you're doing a lot of memos, you're doing a lot of briefs, and all those things come from legal secretary. They're the people that are really actually putting those Do words together and yeah. doing the writing. So that was one part of it. But, you know, I, I grew up in an environment where you had to take care of yourself, you know. I, I had a child very early at 19 years old. I got married early. I had a failed marriage very early. And so I was responsible for taking care of my children and, and my family. And so working every day, getting up, having a strong work ethic, trying to do the best that I could at my job, prepared me really to go into the newsroom. Because in a newsroom, think about it, you have to do the same thing. You gotta, you gotta be a go-getter, you gotta get up early, you gotta be out there, you gotta be the first one on the scene. Those are the kind of things that I learned that my journalism, not my journalism career, but my legal secretary career taught me strong work ethic. And I think that's what I brought as an intern to the newsroom. So you go to Columbia College, you meet P.J. Bednarski and Don Hainer, and they said, come to the Sun-Times. You come to the Sun-Times, and what happened? So I came to the Sun-Times. I remember the very first day that I walked into the newsroom. I stepped off the elevator, and I felt this total calm. This was over at 401 North Wabash. Not scared. Not scared. No, not. I won't say I wasn't scared. I was scared. I was scared my first day. I was, <laughs> I was scared, scared to death my in first fact, day. I came into the newsroom and 
the first assignment that they gave me, I couldn't even think about what a lead on the story was. I sat before a blank screen and I stuttered all day. I just was so excited. Writer's cramp or there. writer's block. So cool. yeah, yeah, that. But I loved it. I loved the I loved the feel of it, the smell of it, the the excitement of it. I remember just being so excited about the fact that I was in the same room with Lynn Sweet. I was in the same room with Tom McNamee. I was in the same room with Don Hainer. I was in the same room with Roger Flaherty and, and, you know, all these people that I had read over the years because it sometimes was my newspaper. I knew the bylines and to think that I was sitting there and beside a Leslie Baldacci was just, it just blew my mind. Now, you came over to City Hall with me, and you hated it in some ways, right? <laughs> right. I didn't like City Hall. I, I mean, I what, didn't, what did you hate? Well, I didn't like the organization of it, the fact that you were following the uh, mayor around. You, you get on the bus, you get off the bus, uh, the press releases, the da-da-da. And, 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 of course, come on, let's be fair. I was sitting over there with you, so getting a story was not an easy thing to do. I mean, you really had to dig because you had all the stories. You, you know, you've been there a long time. Uh, I was there really to learn from you how to get stories, how to develop sources. And I, I remember the one thing about City Hall was that while you were covering major stories, I was digging through documents and boxes and trying to find stories of my own. And the first big story I had over there was the Operation Silver Shovel. I remember that. I mean, you were driving around and you saw this pile of dirt. Right. This, this dump. Towering pile Roosevelt of dirt. Roosevelt and Costner. Oh, right. What and happened? Start, you just happened to be driving by? I was driving by and I saw it. And then, coincidentally, someone called me and said their kid had asthma. And that was kind of my first story about this towering dump of dirt and this kid, uh, the, you know, parents complaining that their children had asthma because of this dumping. So I, that's, that was the tip of it. I didn't even know what I had uncovered. Okay. I started reporting and reporting and reporting and it got bigger and bigger. And then I started calling, uh, aldermen and talking to them about it and find out that some aldermen working with this mysterious guy named John Christopher. <laughs> Little and did you know. Little was did a, I know that this was a major story. An and FBI mole. At FBI he was, mole. He was paying off Alderman, right? Well, he was paying off Alderman. And not only that, every time I would call somebody, they would pretend like they didn't know who this John Christopher was. It was just a crazy story. But I was so green and I was so new that I didn't know what the story really was. And in swoops, Carol Marine, I never forget it. She got the, the, uh, the actual broke the story because, uh, I had gotten very, that close to the truth of the matter and that this was an FBI mole that the FBI had to break the story. Did you feel like you wanted to beat yourself to a pulp for no, missing it? No, I what, think, How did you feel? I, what did you learn? I, I, I felt like, oh, I wanted to beat Carol Marine to a pulp for scooping me. Yeah. But <laughs> you, but what did you learn from that? But I learned what I learned from that was, you know, to keep following. Don't give up. Be persistent. Follow the money. Follow the money. <laughs> F- follow. F- Follow the follow your nose. You know, if you think something is wrong, you think it's not right, you think that there's something more, don't give up on it. Don't turn your attention away. Don't be distracted. Focus on it. Be a bulldog. That's and what a I ton of aldermen went to prison off, over that. Yes, indeedy. And, and, and I, from that moment on, I became obsessed with writing stories that help make a difference in the community. That was the first, that was the tip of the iceberg for me. 
Now, when you've taken on the black icons, like Jesse Sr., for example, he took you on, right? I mean, what did you write about him and what was his reaction that was the worst? Well, the worst for me was the fact that, you know, I I care very much about my community. And then when something happened, and this was, uh, I think the story that you're referring to is Jesse Jackson Sr.'s outside marital affair in which he had a daughter and that story broke I think in another newspaper but we had to cover it and I had to get, uh, write my opinion on it well my opinion was that it was just wrong it was uh, re- re- basically he had not only disgraced himself but he had he had really uh, disgraced the community okay because that was the biggest problem we were having we were having problems with fathers men fathering children and then not taking care of them, not being with them, not being able to raise them, and how that impacts the community. And him being the biggest role model in the African-American community, how could you actually do this? So I had to write that. And I'm telling you, they tore me to pieces, the community did, for writing that because he was such a huge icon. How did they tear you to pieces? What well, happened? you know, they wrote negative things about it. They protested me. My name, they did everything but burn me and just, they... They did tar everything, and tar and, but tar and feather me, you know, because... Did you get hate mail? Did they protest at the Sun-Times? What well, happened? Well, no, I got hate mail. They did not come out and protest at the Sun-Times, but... And that's only because, I think, they knew that I was right, you know? There are stories that they did come by and protest at the Sun-Times, but that Jesse Jackson story was not one of them. And it took us a very long time before we could definitely sit across from each other again. Did he and call talk. you and yell at you when it happened? Well, no, he didn't. But he there he don't have to call you and yell at you. Other people will do that for yeah, him. Yeah, for him. Right. And so then when you did have you the, hash it yeah, out with him? It was years. Really? Many years and later. And how did that go? Well, many years later, uh, I ended up going to, on a tour to the Middle East with him and a group of other journalists. And at that time, that was the first time that we've ever spent any long period of time together. And we didn't, we never talked about what I wrote, but we knew then that that uh, breach, yeah, that gap had been, you know, closed. Okay. Now Chance the Rapper also took That was huge. What happened there? So with Chance the Rapper, it was simply a story that I started off I thought he, this is a great young man. I was very proud of him that, that he had won so many Grammys. Uh, but then there was an issue. And as a columnist, you know, you can write something very positive about somebody, but you got to tell the whole story. So in my story, I not only just talked about how proud I was of him and his um, success, but also talked about the fact that he had this court case going on. And I hoped he did the right thing by the by his daughter and by his baby's mama, because she was not his wife at the time, because he was a role model. Whether he liked it or not, he had been elevated overnight practically into a role model for young uh, African Americans in this city. That's what I wrote, and they tore me to pieces then. In social media, now social media definitely. It was a horrible experience to be dragged on Twitter for what you write, and to then for it to be distorted. Because most people don't read the whole column. All they're going to do is read a portion of it, and then they're going to form an opinion. And he took you on personally, right? Well, I don't know if he took me on person. Not and pretty much attention to that, but I'm sure that he took on the Sun Times. Yeah. Yeah. And so how did that end? It, it didn't? It didn't end. I mean, they wanted me out. The paper supported me. And we just left it like that. What gives you the guts to take on these people? 
Well, I never think about it as the people. I think about it as the issue. Okay, so I write about uh, a single parenting. I write about uh, uh, mothers raising kids by themselves. So if the biggest icon in the African American community yeah. does has a problem and is doing that, I'm going to say something about it. Uh, when I when you think about it, Chance the Rapper was the same issue. It wasn't about me attacking Chance the Rapper. It was about me defending the the the. Uh, right for a woman to be taken who has given birth to your child, you shouldn't be trying to get off cheap paying her child support. Right. That's just the bottom line. And so it's the issue that I address, not so much the person, but as it as it is, the response from these icons, whether it's Chance the Rapper or uh, uh, Reverend Jackson or you know Mayor Daly or anybody else, is that. That if they think that they can stop you and silence you and make you be quiet, then they won. And I wasn't going to let them do that. You've also written about your son's struggles. How did that go and how does that play in your house? Okay, well, my, well, I don't write very much about my family anymore because that's a very hard thing to do. But but uh, years ago, I used to write about and share stories about my family and my and and how I'm dealing with uh, my sons and with my daughters. I did write those stories, and in some ways, it helped because uh, it let people know that they were not alone in their own struggles in raising children. You know, you think that uh, gang life and the, the, the lure of gang life is something that only happens to poor people. Well, no, I was working in Chicago sometimes and my son wanted to be into a gang. And why was that? Well, I had the same challenges that other working parents have. How much time are you spending? You know, who is involved? Are your eyes everywhere that you can see everything that's going on in the office and accomplish everything that's going on in the office and then still take care of your family? Think about that. That's the, that's the ticket that we were sold in our generation, that you can have it all. Right. But really, you, you cannot have it all. No. You can have some of it. There are days when I, you know, look back and think, oh, well, if I hadn't been working so hard, this would not have happened or that would not have happened. And there are days that they're, they're, the, they're the little league games or the, you know, the dance recitals or the music recitals that I didn't make. And my family sacrificed for that, you know. Laquan McDonald, you are one of the few who pursued that along with uh, the investigative journal journalist Jamie Calvin. Talk about that a little bit. So the Laquan McDonald story really interests me for a lot of reasons. You know, it wasn't... As horrible it was, it wasn't just the 16 shots. It was how this kid was brought up. Sure. And his life, the, the struggles that he faced. And where was everybody when he was growing up? Where was everybody when he was in foster care and he was being moved about and he was in juvenile detention? That his, to me, his life was a, a metaphor. And what happened to him was a metaphor of what was going on with the African-American community. Because on one hand, yes, we had this... Terrible things that police officers are doing, but what were we doing to ourselves? And that's the kind of stories and the kind of columns that I would write and that would get me in trouble. Yeah, and you were pursuing it before the tape came out. Oh, definitely. You know, someone told me about it. I had a hard time believing that a Chicago police officer fired 16 shots, not at, but into the body of a, of a, of a teenage boy. I had a hard time believing that. And so when that story, when I found out about it and it came across my desk that this had happened, I saw the autopsy report, I began to write about it. And I was probably one of the first major, uh, one of the first journalists and mainstream media 
to write about that case. But I took it a step further. I also wrote about his upbringing. I also wrote about his troubles. also wrote about the environment that he had grown up in and, and DCFS, DCFS role in what happened to him. As you step back, you look at Chicago. Where are we in terms of race relations and what do we still have to do? I think it's very, very clear that we still don't have a, a, a good understanding of our communities. You know, I mean, what I mean by that is that you still have people who are holding on to stereotypes, either white people holding on stereotypes about black and black people holding on to stereotypes about white. What I found out through my career and through my writing is that there are a lot of white people who want to see things improve and want, want to end the racism and the discrimination that they grew up with. They want to see it end. And I don't think there's a lot of black people who under Stand that that's the way it is, and so what we're we're bumping heads right now. We're not really speaking to each other. We're speaking like this right across each other. So that's one of the reasons I'm stepping back because I think there is a new voice out there. There is a voice that will be able to bridge that gap. There is a voice that will be able to be heard by black people and white people. Who alike. is that voice? I don't know who that voice is, but I think that voice is is coming. Why do we have a black exodus so bad? that we've lost hundreds of thousands of African Americans in this city because in the last few decades. Because black people want the same thing that white people want. They want good schools, they want safe uh, neighborhoods, they want great parks, they want jobs, they want careers. If you don't find that, I mean, that is the reason why black people made an exodus from the South. Right. Because they didn't have opportunities. So. Are you going to sit here and not have anything for your kids, send your kids to bad schools, not be able to provide for them? Nobody wants to do that. So anybody with means, and this is the problem, the people with means, the people with the brain trust, the people who have the ambition and who are productive, they're the ones who are packing up and leaving because they can. Yeah. And that leaves a neighborhood that's in uh, distress. That's you have the, the the food deserts. You have the the lack of uh, proper housing. You have the poor schools. You have the lack of re uh, resources for uh, basic recreation and entertainment in these neighborhoods. And that's why we have or are having such a big problem in uh, addressing the violence. And so the challenge for Mayor Lightfoot, the challenge for Mayor Lightfoot was is going to be holding to not only addressing the lack of resources but holding the community accountable because that's the hard part. What do you mean? What I mean is that, yes, we need these things in our community, but on the other hand, we need to do our part. And what is our part? You got to watch the kids. You got to know what they're doing. You got you to gotta get them. If I provide free meals and I provide recreation, I got to get up out of bed or leave my home to go and take my child to that. Nobody's going to come and get the child and do it for you. You got to do it. These things, they're very hard to say. Rahm Emanuel, former Mayor Rahm Emanuel, tried to say it and he was slapped around yeah. for dare approaching it. But who's got to say it? Somebody's got to say it. Can she say it? I think she, I think she has what it takes to be able to say it. She's a black woman. She's a black gay woman. She's a black woman who grew up in uh, uh, an small environment in a small town. So I think she has... Uh, the ability to say it and the platform to say it. The question is, will she be able to say it? Will it always be somebody else's fault? Our community, the black community cannot survive on that. We have our part to play. 
We just need you to be in partnership with us. And you do right by us. We, we need to do right by ourselves. And how do you want to be remembered? How do you, what, what do you want your legacy to be as a columnist? Well, that I cared, that I heard you, that I listened, and that where I could help, I helped. And where I could make a difference, I tried to make a difference. I think that's, that's how I want to be remembered. I, you know, I didn't cover the, 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 the great stories, the big stories. I covered the stories to me that really matter. And that's the story of people. So that's how I want to be remembered as someone who cared. And listening is a lost art in America, in the world. And I'm so glad we listened to you today because you could talk forever about the stories that you have. Thank you so much. And Thank congratulations you, on a wonderful career. Thank you. And we'll see you all next week. Have you ever wondered how to say good morning in Italian? Or what is goodbye in French? You can ask Alexa. Just say, what is happy birthday in German? Or how do you say hello in Japanese? Do you want to know how to say I love you in Spanish? Ask Alexa and start learning a new language today.